praise God for every small group um, that meets around here at Bethel Church. And I just want to affirm just uh, Tony and Megan and the work that they're doing. And really all the small groups that are part of our campus, small group leaders, I hope you're encouraged um, by that story. And um, God is using you um, to to share the gospel um, and to share God's word in people's lives. And God is changing people in the context of community. And if you're, if you're here and you've never really considered uh, what it might mean to be in community or to be in a small group, I just want to recommend that to you and just affirm um, that uh, God's word um, puts before us um, not a, a, a solo approach to the Christian life, but to live Christian, the Christian life in community. And um, I would love to talk to you what it might mean for you to join a small group or, um, or anything like that. So um, I appreciate that. I'm also, I'm also thankful for stories, right? People's stories, like stories of God's grace, to hear about Ray and Megan, to hear about Ray. He's like, man, I was, I was, I was drinking. I was hitting a bottle. I was, I was turning to alcohol. Uh, to find joy and to find relief from from stress and to hear just the story of him meeting Tony and Tony just encouraging him in the Lord and in the scriptures um, about a, a just a better way in Christ and um, I just think that's awesome I love I love stories do you guys love stories yeah I love stories of God's grace and that's exactly what we have this morning in the book of Philemon we're going to be in Philemon today. And I'm excited to be digging into this morning. If you don't know where that is, it's in the New Testament and it's sandwiched right in between Titus and Hebrews. It's only one page long. Okay. So if you flip it too fast, you're going to skip over it. Um, one chapter, 24 verses long. Just a little bit about the book before we jump in. Uh, the book of Philemon is, uh, is a short letter. It's the shortest of Paul's letters. And, with, and if it wasn't for second or third John, it would be the shortest in the New Testament. So it's written by Paul, and what we find is that it's a, even though it's a Paul, even though it's a letter written by Paul, it's a very different Paul. Okay, for a couple of reasons. One is usually Paul's just kind of laying it down theologically, kind of thick, just heavy, kind of working through just big kind of doctrines and and Christology. And usually, a lot of times too, he's like forming an argument or he's refuting a false teaching. And so you get this kind of like real heady, a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth. Paul. It's not the case in this letter. This is a letter uh, written to a friend. It's a very personal letter. Um, and so we're used to Paul um, really kind of being heavily theological. This is, he's very personal in this letter. Also too, this letter is not written to a church, which is most of Paul's letters. There's only, only four letters written to individuals. Uh, the other three uh, of the personal letters are written to pastors, uh, pastoral protege. So first and second Timothy considered pastoral epistle. Titus also is kind of one of Paul's guys, really building him up and releasing him for a uh, pastoral work. Um, Philemon is neither of those. He's not a church. He's not a pastor. He's a friend. Okay. And so this is a little bit of a different Paul here, a little bit of a personal side comes out. And so this is a, a little bit of a unique glimpse into uh, the, the Apostle Paul almost kind of kicked back after a day uh, of work, just kind of with his uh, hair down, so to speak, and his shoes off. So it's kind of cool to really kind of get this kind of view of Paul in this letter. So like I said, 24 verses long. Let's read the whole letter and then we'll get to it. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and, and Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God, as we dig into this book, I pray that your spirit would be here helping us to, to mine and discover all that you have here for us. So God, move and act in this room as we consider your grace, as we consider the personal nature of this letter. God, I pray that the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ would come and hit us right where we're at in our lives. And may you do great things, God, through the preaching of your word. These feeble words that I offer, your spirit to make them uh, and take the word of God and apply that uh, to our lives. Change us all, God, by your grace. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled this message, The Redemptive Drama of a Slave Owner, a Fugitive, and a Prisoner. This is the book of Philemon. And so we're going to tell the backstory. Normally, it's a little bit of a, out of my comfort zone. I like to come in and hit it. You guys know, like, big truths and a lot of passion and, and just kind of getting into the meat. And uh, this is a little bit of narrative. So we're going to be telling the backstory of how this letter came about. And we're going to do that as we introduce our three main characters. So the first is the slave owner. And the slave owner in this drama is who the letter is written to and named after. This is Philemon. Philemon is a slave owner. He's a small business owner. He owned at least one slave named Onesimus. And from what we can tell, he's a hard worker and he's pretty successful. So just really quick, I want to do a sidebar and talk about slavery in the first century because I think we would be amiss not to touch on uh, the social structure of the day as we consider some of the language here in uh, Philemon. So slavery was the social structure of the time there in the first century, an unjust social structure for sure. But uh, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was unlike slavery in the New World with the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's day was not race-based, and it was seldom lifelong. In fact, in Paul's day, many slaves had kind and generous masters, 
and in many cases, better off than a huge population of freemen because these masters, um, they, 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 they invested in uh, the education of those that belonged to them and also their trade development. Um, further, many slaves were called bond servants in Paul's day. And we see that letter he, or we see that word rather in this letter, which was a kind of, of willing slave. Um, some were free, but they willingly chose to stay and serve their masters. And there were others who were considered bond servants. Like I said, who might nevertheless, they might own property. They could achieve social advancement and even be released to purchase their own freedom. And so the apostle Paul wrote extensively on this relationship between slave and master. And he does so in Colossians and in Ephesians. And it's important to point out, he never really pushes against this social structure, but rather seeks to show how the gospel can renew it and redeem it. And eventually the gospel won out and we eradicated slavery all uh, together uh, as a social structure um, uh, any case. Uh, so after stuttering this letter a few times, it seems as though Philemon was a slave owner of the godly kind. He seems like a, just a great guy. Um, and those that served under Philemon would have been on the more fortunate side of this social structure. So this is Onesimus. Philemon seems to be a fair man, a just man. Um, and Onesimus seems to be serving um, a pretty decent guy in Philemon. So getting back to Philemon, here's what I love most about this guy. He's just an average guy. He's an average guy, Right? He's just an average guy. He's not a pastor. He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. He's just a regular guy. Sometimes we tell stories of Paul, apostle, missionary. Peter, apostle, walked with Jesus. Some of these guys that have given themselves to ministry, and we can't really connect because we're off working a 9 to 5, a 9 to 9, a 7 to 7, or working 48 hours straight, or whatever some crazy schedules you guys have. But Philemon's your guy. He's just a regular guy. If you're here today and you're a dad and you're a husband with a family and a nine to five and you're working and just trying to figure out life, work, family, ministry, faith, and you're trying to balance all that, Philemon's your guy. All right. I would imagine him if he was around today, he'd have a job at the mills, he'd have a pickup truck and he'd fit in really well over here at the Cedar Lake campus. So Philemon's just an average blue collar guy. I love guys like this. Okay. So pretty excited about that. Somebody that we can really relate to. Um, what else do we know about Philemon? Well, there's very strong evidence in verse 19 that Philemon became a Christian as a direct result of Paul's ministry. Look at verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. To say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. And we use this kind of language with friends, right? If we get a buddy a job, right? Or we get them a good deal on a car. Or we help a friend out in a pinch. We'll kind of use this like owing me language. Like, man, you owe me. We'll use that in a relational way. And we see Paul doing the same thing. Philemon was a convert through Paul and his preaching of the gospel. Philemon owed Paul for being introduced to Jesus and gaining eternal life. And what we see Paul doing here is he's leveraging his position in Philemon's life. And he uses this word owe in a relational way. And really, this explains the close relationship between Paul and Philemon. If any of you know or have someone in your life that has invested in you spiritually and has really helped contribute uh, to your understanding, knowing, and growing deeper in your Christian walk and your understanding of Christ, that person plays a special role in your life. And even as I say that, some of you are bringing, coming to mind specific people who invested in, took time, 
prayed with you, cared for you. Think about Ray and Megan in that story, right? Tony and Megan will always have a special place in their life because of their investment, because of their encouragement. And so really, this is what we have with Paul and Philemon. Paul made this kind of investment in Philemon's life, and they were very, very close. So Philemon was a follower of Jesus because of Paul. But we also see in the greeting here in verse 2, his entire household followed Jesus. And we also come to find out that Philemon hosted the entire Colossian church in his home. So the book of Colossians, right, that we have in the New Testament, that church that that letter is written to, there's strong evidence that that entire church met in Philemon's house. Look at verse 2. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it's widely accepted that Aphia here in verse 2 is Philemon's wife, right? And she's a believer. Paul calls her a sister in the Lord. So here's Philemon. Here's Aphia, just a normal, average couple in the church, serving, loving, doing ministry together as husband and wife. Archippus is also mentioned in verse 2. And Archippus is speculated to be Philemon's son. Look at the title here that Paul uses of Archippus, fellow soldier. If we take that coupled with what Paul says of uh, Archippus in Colossians 4.17, you can write that down, a little side note on Archippus there. It would seem to indicate that Archippus had a very significant ministry role at the church in uh, Colossae there. Interesting side story, their lead pastor, Epaphras, is gone. He's on a missionary journey. He's gone to visit Paul. And it's very, very likely that Archippus was chosen to be the, be the pastor of the church at Colossae there in Epaphras' stead while he's gone. And also, too, here it mentions the church in your house. So churches in the first century, um, they were really had to kind of be underground. It was a, more like a secretive thing. Um, they, uh, Rome kind of saw them as a threat because they proclaimed the gospel of a Lord other than Caesar. And uh, there were really no buildings dedicated for church services, nothing like this. We couldn't gather publicly like this. Um, they would have to meet in homes. And so that's what, that's what we see here happening with the church of Colossae. Philemon owned a house large enough for the church at Colossae to meet meet in it every single week. And so you guys know that, right? I mean, it's like, it's, some of you ladies are like, holy cow, like it's enough to host a small group and maybe friends over, right? For dinner every once in a while. But it's like the church is gathering in my home every single week, right? So Afia had to have been the hostess with the mostess, right? Um, really, really gifted in hospitality. And this is the kind of couple that we see here with Philemon and Afia. So that's Philemon. The next person in our story is our fugitive. So we have our slave owner, that's Philemon. And now we're introduced to our fugitive. And uh, this is Onesimus in the story. And Onesimus' uh, name, oddly enough, means useful. Okay, he's our fugitive. He's a bondservant. He legally belongs to Philemon. And although he had it relatively good, he decides to skip town and run away. For what reason? I have no idea. But what we find is that not only did he skip town and leave, uh, the one that he was legally uh, belonged to, um, but there's evidence here in the text that would say that he really wronged Philemon and probably robbed him in the process. Look at verse 18. If he's wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And I don't think that if here is like a if that's the case. I think Paul knows that, Phile- that, that Onesimus really wronged Philemon in the process. 
Now, it's not unusual for slaves to really run away uh, there in the first century. In fact, Rome had very strict laws and rules in regard to fugitive slaves. But many were willing to risk the wrath of Rome and the risk of their owners to gain freedom. Like I said, a lot of slaves didn't have it good like I'm, I'm assuming um, that Onesimus had it. And they were willing to risk Rome and owner to escape. <clears throat> And so Onesimus runs away, and he really wrongs Philemon in the process. He robs him in the process. And if you've ever been robbed or stolen from in direct relation to your livelihood, you know how Philemon's feeling in this moment, right? Some of you might have had uh, maybe a, a background in construction. Maybe your van or your truck was broken into, or maybe you're a, you're a musician. I've heard of stories of guys like their guitar stolen out of their thing or, or their car or, or, or something in re direct relation to your livelihood is stolen from you, right? This is exactly what's happening here with Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus leaves, and he leaves Philemon in a tough spot financially and also professionally, right? You know maybe you're a small business owner, and you've had an employee just, just dip out on you without even giving you a two-week notice. And back in the first century, it's not like today, like, I'm just going to call up manpower, right, and get somebody in here to take his place. Philemon's probably scrambling, trying to figure out how to replace Onesimus. And if his name means anything, we know that he was useful and a very good worker. And so Philemon's left, just, uh, just money's taken from him. Onesimus, who would have been very valuable to his business as well, he leaves, and Philemon's just left. And to put it in street-level terms, Philemon's getting the shaft here, Right? He got the shaft. And if you've ever been shafted, okay? Any of you guys ever been shafted here? Any of you guys have ever been wronged? Yeah, okay? We know what this is like. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? It's a hard pill to swallow when someone wrongs us and robs us and leaves us in a tight spot. And so this kind of leads us to this question. Why did he run away? Why did Onesimus run away? Philemon seems to be like a good man, a fair man. For reasons that we'll never know, Onesimus leaves and heads for the city of Rome, which is roughly 875 miles away. And if the length of the journey would say anything to the amount that he stole from Philemon, I think it does. Because it's not cheap traveling 875 miles. He, in this journey, he has to pass over two large bodies of water. Right? And he kind of has to hide himself as a fugitive. So maybe he's purchasing clothes. He needs to purchase a ride on a boat. And he's traveling. So he needs to eat and he needs to interact when he comes to cities and stuff like that. So I think he took a significant amount of money away from Philemon. But nonetheless, he travels 870 mi 800, roughly 900 miles from Colossae to Rome. And just to give you an idea, that's like from Chicago to Jacksonville on foot. Okay? It's a long journey. It's a long time. And it was pretty typical for fugitives in that day, runaway slaves, to head to a big city, specifically Rome. Why? Because there's a ton of people there. You can blend in. You can hide. And also, too, there's, there's always an underbelly, an underworld in every city, right? And uh, there would have been other fugitive slaves, ex-slaves, uh, that Onesimus could have come to and connected there. A guy like Onesimus would have found refuge and safe haven in a city like Rome. So here's the question. How do we know Onesimus fled to Rome? How do you know that, Sorcy? Right? It doesn't say that in the letter. How do we know that Onesimus fled to Rome? Well, the answer to that question really introduces a twist in the story. Here's our twist, right? And any of you guys have any shows that you like on TV, there's always lots of twists, and we love it. It keeps us coming back for more, right? Here's the twist. Onesimus flees to Rome, where he eventually meets the Apostle Paul. 
He flees to Rome and meets the Apostle Paul there, who at that time was in prison in Rome. And the Apostle Paul is our prisoner in the story. And so here we get introduced to Paul. Paul is in chains in Rome at this time when he writes Philemon. It is the same jail where he would write the letter of Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. He's chained to a Roman soldier. It's more kind of like a house arrest kind of a thing rather than like penitentiary, okay? So think house arrest versus Westfield a bit, you know? Um, So he's a little bit more freedom than someone who's kind of locked down. And so um, Paul's in prison because of the gospel. Now, why is Paul in prison because of the gospel? I think it's important to note. At this time, Rome was in charge here in the first century. They had reign. And there was something called the imperial cult, where Caesar was to be worshipped as Lord. Well, the gospel is a, it's good news of a different Lord, a better Lord, one Lord, a greater Lord. And so Paul preached that every knee would bow and tongue confess that not Caesar was Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And if you read Philippians, you see this kind of undertone here where Paul is pushing back against the imperial cult there and the demand from Caesar to worship him as Lord. And so Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's imprisoned because of it. And think about this. Of all the people to meet in the city of Rome, 875 miles away from the place that you ran away from, you meet one of the best friends of the guy you just ran away from and stole all his cash. Right? I mean, this is crazy. You can't make this up. 875 miles. Philemon's got a good friend that led him to the Lord and the Apostle Paul. Onesimus ends up meeting that guy. Right? This is pretty crazy here. We have no idea what the circumstances are, but he does. He meets him. This is almost impossible. It's like, how'd that happen? Right? And you start to think through, like, how, how did this happen? Did the Apostle Paul remember Onesimus from the time when he was over at Philemon's house? No doubt the Apostle Paul spent time in Philemon's house. Look at what he says at the end of the letter. He goes, prepare for me a bed. I'm, I'm hoping to come see you. Obviously, he knows he's welcome at Philemon's house. Was he there? Did he meet Onesimus before? He recognized him? Like, hey, dude, I know you from back there. That's a long ways away. What are you doing here? Maybe he called his name out, right? Maybe he saw him pass by the house where he was in prison. Or maybe this. Did conviction fall over Onesimus? You know, 875 miles, you're running for your life. If you get caught by a Roman soldier or you get found out, you might be facing death. And maybe in the intensity of that journey, Right? Maybe in the quietness of him running away, right? Maybe in the nervousness there, God begins to speak to him. Maybe he begins to convict him. Maybe he begins to call him to himself. And maybe when he's in Rome, he gets wind, the Apostle Paul's in jail, and Onesimus now convicted and sorrowful because God's getting after him. Maybe he seeks Paul out for some advice. Say, Paul, here's what happened. Help me out because God's getting after me. We have no idea what the circumstances were, but one thing we do know is that Onesimus ends up meeting Paul. And here's the second twist in the story. Onesimus ends up becoming a Christian. Paul, just like he did Philemon years before, he leads Onesimus to Christ. So now these two guys that have a big beef, Onesimus and Philemon, if they're on Facebook, they have one mutual friend, right? And you come to find out like you have a friend, like they have a mutual friend. How are they friends with that person? Right? You ever had that? Just me? Okay. But they have a mutual friend in Paul. And he is, it, it, this is, I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a unique thing here 
um, that's happening in this story. But Paul ends up leading Onesimus uh, to Christ. So look at what Paul says of Onesimus here as he's writing to Philemon, verses 10 to 14. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to to you, but now indeed he's useful to me. See how he's playing on his name there. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And we see how these two became very close. Look at some of the, look at some of the titles that he gives to Onesimus. My child. Right? We saw in First John, that's how John talks to the people of his church, those who he pastors. My child. Look, he calls them my very heart. And he says that Onesimus, whose name means useful, has now become useful to, to me. Onesimus is actually starting to serve the Apostle Paul. Not only does he come to Christ through Paul's ministry, he begins to serve him while he's on house arrest there. And Paul would have been limited in his ability, so we come to find out that Onesimus becomes Paul's hands and feet in gospel ministry there in Rome. Maybe he's doing some communication or, or running some notes or, or whatever it may be. Onesimus is a runner now for the gospel, and he's working for Paul and the gospel there in Rome. And Paul would have loved to have kept Onesimus, as we see there in verse 13, but he just can't. Paul can't. He can't keep harboring this fugitive for two reasons. Although Onesimus is coming to Christ, it's a very exciting twist in the story. Paul's in a huge pickle because Rome dealt harshly with fugitive slaves. Now imagine if you already have a prisoner in Paul, what they would have done to both Onesimus and Paul if they come to find out that Paul's been harboring this fugitive. And listen, Rome's not messing around, okay? The cross was invented by the Persians. It was perfected by the Romans. And their military and political tactic was intimidation. And so they made an example out of you. And they didn't mess around. And so Paul is facing really some legalities here. And if he gets busted out, and if Onesimus gets busted as well, neither of them want that. Onesimus was willing to risk that, but it seems that he's had a change of heart. But the danger of getting caught by Rome aside, Paul realized there's a deeper, deeper issue here. This is a gospel issue. This is a, this is a church issue. This is a unity issue. Paul knew Onesimus had to go back and right what he had wronged. And considering the change in Onesimus, now that the Spirit is indwelling him, now that he's been softened in his heart, I have to believe that Onesimus would have wanted to go back and do the same. So what does Paul do? What's Paul's master plan to right this wrong? Paul carefully and craftily writes a letter, this letter that we know of as Philemon. He puts it in Onesimus' hand and sends him back 875 miles back to Colossae to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with his master. Letter in hand, Onesimus comes to the guy he had wronged however months ago, and he hands it to him. Can you imagine that moment? Philemon, I'm sure, has moved on. It's no joke traveling 800, 900 some miles on foot, right? He's probably been gone for a long time. Philemon's kind of maybe moved on, right? Maybe financially and also uh, with his job. Right. But imagine, imagine if you're Philemon and you see Onesimus for the very first time in months, the guy that's just wronged you, the guy that's just robbed you. He's fled. 
right? All the hurt, all the, all the, all the, all the, all the pain, all the difficulty that Onesimus caused in Philemon's life. And you see him off in the distance coming up and he meets you and you guys stand face to face for the very first time. Can you imagine that moment? Imagine Onesimus handing Philemon a letter and Onesimus telling him, this is from Paul. Paul, you met Paul. How'd you meet Paul? Where is Paul? How's Paul doing? Philemon loves Paul. He would have had a ton of questions about Paul. How'd you guys meet? Imagine just Philemon just replaying all this in his mind and all this in his life. A lot of you guys know, right? We've dated before we got married, right? You know that moment when you see like your ex-girlfriend for the first time? Awkward, right? It's awkward, right? Or maybe somebody that's really wronged you and you see them. All those emotions come back. All that hurt comes back. This is exactly what Philemon's experiencing when he sees Onesimus for the first time and he hands him this letter. Imagine opening that letter with, Phil- with Onesimus standing right in front of you. Imagine reading about the transformation of Onesimus and the close bond formed between the one that betrayed him and the apostle he loves. The drama surrounding this letter is huge and the tension in that moment is so thick you would have needed a chainsaw to cut through it. And so this is the story. This is the backdrop to this letter. And so what I want to do is I want to draw out five things, five things in this letter, five highlights, things that we learned from the letter of Philemon to encourage us the morning. The first is this, Paul's request of Philemon. Paul's request of Philemon. One of the big questions in this letter is, Paul, what exactly are you requesting from Philemon? Because he kind of is a little ambiguous sometimes as he's writing. Right? And it seems to be maybe a couple of things that he's requesting, like, hey, send Onesimus back to me or receive him not as a bond slave again, but as a free man. So there's a couple of things going on there. But one thing's for sure. Paul wants Onesimus to receive. Paul wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother and no longer as a slave. Look at verses 15 to 17. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Receive him back. Forgive him. Reconcile. This is the main request that Paul has for Philemon. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Philemon, he frames Paul's request very well. He writes this. Paul is not asking for a paternalistic willingness to let bygones be bygones. We're not just talking about sweeping this under the rug. Remember that time you ran from me, bro, and stole all that cash? That was a long time ago. Hey, no worries, man. Nothing like that. Nor is he offering good advice to Philemon on how to maintain a dignified detachment untroubled by passion or anger. He doesn't doesn't deal with Philemon therapeutically. He doesn't write to him saying, hey, how to deal with your bitterness and in your anger. He seeks the specifically Christian virtue of loving forgiveness, which will demand humility from both parties. Onesimus to seek forgiveness, Philemon to grant it. Onesimus must abandon fear, Philemon must abandon pride. And the thing which will induce both parties to do this is a theological fact, namely the fellowship, koinonia, which belongs to the people of Christ. So Wright is talking about this word koinonia, which is translated usually fellowship. It appears one time in this letter, and it's in verse 6. And it's usually translated fellowship, like I said. when Usually when we hear fellowship, we usually think of people's 
We usually think of other Christians spending time together. And it usually involves food, and it usually involves everything else except Jesus Christ, like bears or whatever it might be. We just think of like Christians hanging out. But in verse 6, this word koinonia, which is usually translated fellowship, is translated this, sharing of your faith. Sharing of your faith. Look at one six, And I pray that the sharing of your faith, Philemon, the koinonia, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So if reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus is the main goal, then verse 6 is Paul's main request. And he cryptically puts it in this prayer at the beginning of this letter. Now it's worth focusing on verse 6 because there's a bigger why behind Paul's request. All right, he doesn't say, just, hey, man, just do the right thing. Just forgive him, get past it. There's a bigger why. There's a bigger heart in this koinonia, in this request of reconciliation. The word koinonia itself has the sense of commonality or mutual participation. And it always has an active sense with Paul. So it has legs, it has feet, it does something. See, koinonia is not simply the enjoyment of other Christians' company. It has to do with sharing in our commonality. So every Christian in here today, if you've come to this place and you're in Christ, every Christian in here today has Christ in common. We have a common experience of grace. In the first service, I had a guy wearing a bear shirt and a guy wearing a Packer shirt sitting two rows from each other. And I said, see the differences there? If you're in Christ, you share Christ in common. Football, not so much, but Christ for sure. And this is the church. We all have a common experience in Christ. A common experience of grace where Jesus has rescued us from the consequences of our sins. When he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Jesus together, all of us, he is our substitute. He died because of us. He died for us. He acted on our behalf at the cross. And he continues to act on our behalf at the Father's right hand. This is the thing that we share. This is the thing that we have in common. This is the thing that Paul's getting at. This koinonia, this commonality, this mutual participation in Christ. Christians share the belief, embrace, and participation of Christ in common. But now remember, koinonia is active. Paul always uses it in the active sense. So, here's what koinonia means as he brings up this commonality. And here's how it relates to Philemon extending grace and extending forgiveness to Onesimus springing or bursting forth from this common participation in Christ and all the benefits that come from being in relationship with Christ, koinonia extends beyond a mere common concern, extends beyond just mere sentimentality, right? This isn't a feeling or just kind of like a truth that's floating out there. It extends beyond that to an actual exchange, an actual expression, a thing that we interchange with one another. And in fact, it, it makes sense that this word is actually often translated generosity. Generosity. When you think of generosity, what do you think? You think of giving, right? You think of sharing. You think of taking what belongs to you and giving it to another. This is this idea of koinonia. <clears throat> it goes beyond just the fact of this commonality. Koinonia is not a tip of the hat to this commonality in Christ. It is an active exchanging and sharing of what we all commonly have in Christ. And with that in mind, here's my translation of verse 6. And there's a reason why I'm not a Bible translator, okay? So this is the TSV, the Tony Sourcey version here. So bear with me. But keeping that in mind, here's what I think Paul is praying for Philemon in verse 6. 
He's saying, Philemon, be an example to the church. Be an example to the church. Take this radical grace, forgiveness, and humility that you have, this good in you because of Christ. You have this in common now with Onesimus. Share this forgiveness with him. Exchange the common reconciliation you both have in Christ with this one that has wronged you. Do it to be an effective example so that others will know how powerful God's grace is in our lives. Do it because of and for Christ. It's not just a tip of the hat. It's to actually take what all of us have in Christ and in relationship and community of one another, what we're doing is we're sharing together what we have in Christ. And sometimes there's drama and beef behind that. And sometimes we're just in community. When we love each other, we're just sharing grace, mercy, kindness, love, right? Sharing encouragement and sharing words. Maybe we're sharing money. Maybe we're sharing meals. Maybe we're sharing hospitality. In this specific case, what Paul wants Philemon to do is to share this common experience that they have in reconciliation, forgiveness, and mercy with this one that's wronged him. Share it. Act out what you have in common. And church, this is the heinousness of when we, for, when we fail to forgive each other and, and, and both parties are a member of the body of Christ because we deny the power of the gospel in our lives. You both share that in common and you're both failing to express that commonality and exchanging it with one another. And that's a shame. And that's a shame, especially for those of us who know and have tasted of this love and have tasted of this mercy. And so here's what we see. He's saying, Philemon, share, exchange, take what you have, the good in you that's been wrought by the gospel, that's been wrought by Christ, and share that with this one who has wronged you. And this is way more powerful, and it's more true to say it the way that Paul's saying it, than just say, hey, dude, just obey. Just do what's right. Here's a verse, obey it. Right? Why? Because Paul links Philemon's obedience deep, it has deep tentacles into the grace of God. It has deep tentacles into this commonality that we share with Christ. And that's where the power to do this hard thing that Philemon has to do, that's where it's going to come from. Only by being remembered of what Christ did for him is going to be able to produce this kind of forgiveness. Which leads me to the next highlight of this small letter. Paul's choice in motivating Philemon. I love this and I want us to get this. Paul's choice in motivating Philemon. It's important to point out that Paul does not just authoritatively command Philemon to obey a Christian principle. He, at the beginning of the letter, he said, I can do this. I can demand of you that you do require what you're supposed to do, but I don't want to do that. Look at verse 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Notice here, Paul is appealing to the heart of Philemon. He wants to get at his heart. He wants to get at that place that's the, the seat of all emotion and, and desire. He wants to get at his heart. Look further down at verse 14. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul's on to something. He knows how to motivate people in the Christian life. Paul wants Philemon to extend this forgiveness and this reconciliation out of a desire to do so from the heart. Sink deep into the gospel, Philemon. Remember this koinonia. Remember this commonality in Christ. I want to appeal to your heart. Extend grace and forgiveness and love from there. Paul doesn't come in with a law. He doesn't come in with a rule and apply pressure to Philemon, right? Pressuring him to do the right thing. No, he appeals to his heart because he knows, he knows the Christian life is a life that flows out of the heart. Not law, 
but grace flowing from the heart. He knows that. And this is typical for Paul. Look at how he addresses giving, like giving of money with the church at Corinth. Look at what he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. See that? Have you ever connected your giving to your heart? Your money is closely tied to your heart. It's this word greed in the New Testament, right? Your money is closely tied to your heart. What we do with our money. He says each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not pressure from the outside, not a law. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves those who give out of joy. God loves those who know they have a treasure in Christ and they give because they've been given so much in Christ. That's how Paul wants the Christian life to work. That's how Paul wants obedience to work. If you come here today and you're more driven and pressured by law and rules, I want to encourage you with this little word. It's called grace. This is the way Paul encourages people. In Christ, flowing from the heart, he knows that that is what's going to sustain long-term obedience in the Christian life. Paul knows true obedience. He knows a better way to motivate people in the Christian life. Now, I want, I want you to notice this. Look at this, what, he, what Paul does here. This is genius. Look at what he does. In verse 17 and 19, hear Paul's words. To Philemon. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. As I've dug into commentaries and other people who have chimed in on Philemon, other people agree and, and, and point out here in this letter that Paul, in a sense, plays the role of Christ in this drama between these two. Paul identifies himself in these three verses. He identifies himself both with the sinner, the offender, and the offended party. Receive him as you would receive me. If he owes you anything, charge that to my account. See how he advocates for Onesimus here? See how he puts himself as a substitute in Onesimus' place? He stands in the place of the wrongdoer, and he says to Paul, if he's wronged you at all, charge that to my account. Receive him as you would receive me. You see that? Receive him as you would receive me. He advocates for Onesimus, the one who is the offender. He also identifies with the offended. Notice how he identifies with the hurt and the wrong that has taken place in Philemon's life. If he owes you anything, charge that to my account. He's hurt you. He's wronged you. He's offended you. But if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, if you can't connect the dots to what Paul's doing here in advocating for sinner and in speaking of forgiveness, charging to another's account... If we can't connect the dots of the gospel here, then we need to do a better job of preaching the gospel around here. We see that Jesus is both an advocate for the sinner. He's also one whom he's a substitute where the account, the wrong is placed on him instead of the wrongdoer. And Paul here is playing Christ. This is gospel genius from Paul. They have Christ in common and they have Paul in common. And Paul's alluding to Christ. Look at what Luther wrote in regards to this verse. Here we see how St. Paul takes the part of poor Onesimus and advocates his cause with his master. He acts exactly as if he were Onesimus who had done the wrong. Yet he does this not with force or compulsion as lay within his rights, but he empties himself of his rights in order to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. What Christ has done for us with God the Father, that St. Paul does also for Onesimus with Philemon. 
For Christ emptied himself of his rights and overcame the Father with love and humility so that the Father had to put away his wrath and rights and receive us into favor for the sake of Christ who so earnestly advocates our cause and so heartily takes our part. For we are all Onesimuses if we believe. As I'm sharing this story, who are you identifying the most with? Because I'll tell you who we really are in the story. And this story is not an allegory. This story took place. But who are we really in this story? We're Onesimus. We're Onesimus. We're the ones who have ran from our Lord and from our master. And we have run hard and we have run fast and we have wronged him in the process. And just like Onesimus coming back seeking forgiveness and reconciliation from Philemon, so we too every day run and return, run and return. This is our story. Onesimus' story is our story. We are sinners who every day run from God and their need to run back to him, seeking the forgiveness, seeking the reconciliation that he is so readily available to hand out because of his rich grace. I love Luther's line, for we are all Onesimuses if we believe. I love what Paul's doing here. He's actually acting out the gospel, right, with these guys. And he's, and he's charging them based upon their commonality in Christ to exchange and to share this thing that they have in common with Christ. The next is this. In the story, we see the gospel's power to forgive and to reconcile. This letter is almost like a gospel case study. Because here's the thing. If theology can't be applied, what's the point? Like if I got up here every weekend and just waxed eloquently, said a bunch of big words and, 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 and kind of put myself off as smart, right? Like, and you walk away like, I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I, right? Like what, what's the point? If theology can't be applied, what's the point? And what we see here is that Paul's faced with two Christians who are estranged from each other. He's led them both to Christ. He loves them both dearly. And Paul knows that the gospel is a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And he's seeking to bring these two together. And we see the power of this forgiveness and reconciliation in this story. It was Paul who wrote this in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. You see that? There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul's saying here is it's not about social status. It's about koinonia. It's about this commonality that we have in Christ. And Paul is trying his best to bring these two back together. If this letter were a movie, I would hate it. I would hate it. I watch some of these indie movies on Netflix, but the Indians are so stupid. Like, they leave it open, like, hey, you interpret this. Like, this isn't cool or creative. Like, this is dumb. Like, give me an ending. I want to see an ending, right? There's no ending. We don't know what happened. All we know is the letter and the appeal from Paul to Philemon. We have no idea about the ending. All we can do is speculate. But even though we don't know, Paul seemed confident that Philemon would do what's right. Look at verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than what I say. You know what I'm always blown away by? I'm always blown away by the willingness in Christians to forgive. The willingness in those who know Christ to forgive. This last week I launched a core group and uh, just four guys, five guys getting together. Um, 
It's a part of Barnabas Project, which is a men's leadership initiative that we have here at Bethel Church. And we all went around and told our story. And this one man shared the story of his son murdered in 2011. Son was murdered, stabbed to death. And he talked about his process of forgiveness. And he talked about just seconds and minutes after his son died. He's in this hospital crying out to God, God, help me. Help me to forgive this man that murdered my son. And I'm like, what? Because I'm putting myself in his place. Because I have a son. And I'm putting myself in his place. And all that's coming to me is just bitterness and anger. And un, like, I'm, I'm just like, I can't believe that. And by God's grace, this man musters up the soft heart. He musters up a prayer to God, asking God to help him forgive the one who's murdered his son. And he said by his own testimony, as soon as I prayed that, a huge weight was lifted off of his chest. And this man is moving forward with grace and love toward this person. Do you know the only thing that can produce that? The only thing that can produce that is the gospel. Grace is the only thing that can produce that. And so Paul knows that Philemon needs a dose of grace, a big dose of grace, to forgive this guy that's harmed him. And this is why he plays the part of Christ. This is why he talks about their commonality in Christ and in grace. And this is why he ends his letter in this way. Last sentence. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See, a lot of times we throw those last words away, right? Not in this letter, because that's real for Philemon. He needs the grace of God in his spirit, in his heart, to extend forgiveness towards this guy. I have two last points. I'm going to skip the next one and just go to the last one. The next one was supposed to be God's grace in Philemon's life, kind of like a little bit of a character study of Philemon. But of course, like usual, I have way more content than what 45 minutes allows me. So here we are at this place again. But anyways, I was going to talk about God's grace in Philemon's life, that he had an attractive faith. He was hospitable. He had loyalty and love towards God and towards others. He was a blessing to others. We see here that he refreshed the hearts of the saints. He was an encouragement to leadership. Paul appreciated uh, Philemon. He refreshed his heart in Christ. And he also had a love for the church. He hosted the church. He was involved in the church. He truly practiced this koinonia. But the last thing, this last thing that we pull from Philemon to encourage us today is this. God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. And for this, I'm just blown away by Onesimus' story. Think about this. This guy runs from home and owner, travels roughly 875 miles across two large bodies of water from Colossae to Rome. He thinks he's running to, be, to a city to be free, and he has no idea the freedom that's awaiting him there in Christ. He thinks he's running away from being a slave to be free, to be a non-slave, but he has no idea the freedom in Christ that he's going to meet there. Isn't this awesome? 875 miles, and all he's doing is running to the place where God's going to save him. And do you think this is coincidence? Right? Like, please, like, really? This is crazy. You can't make this up. The story is ridiculous. Philemon is a story of God's sovereign grace. You don't make things like this up. God's orchestrating this. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's recorded it for us in Scripture for our benefit and for our joy and for our encouragement. And here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say to those of you who are running from God's grace. Because I know there's some people in here, you're just running from God. 
you know the truth, but you're just pushing it down. You're suppressing it. And every time the Spirit brings it up, you're like, eh, I don't want that. I want this. I want the flesh. I want the world. I don't want that. I know that's the truth. And you're just suppressing and you're just running. Here's what I want to say to you. Run all you want. Run all you want. Because if God's going to save you, he's going to blow your whole world up by his grace. And 875 miles isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to be enough. Because you can't outrun God's sovereign hand and you can't out God's sovereign grace. You can't do it. You can't do it. So run all you want. Run all you want. I also want to encourage those of us who here who have loved ones who are running. Parents. Grandparents. Right? Maybe you're parenting from afar. Your daughter, your son is running from God's grace. Think about Philemon. No doubt he cared about Onesimus and his faith. You think Philemon shared the gospel with Onesimus? Absolutely. You think Onesimus was around in some of those church services there at Colossae? Absolutely. You know what Philemon's probably thinking? This guy's just run away from the house, the only house where he's going to hear the gospel. He's going to be gospelless. There's a tendency to think like that, isn't it, friends who have loved ones, right? Isn't it parents whose kids, they leave the house, right? They leave, they're, they're not under your care anymore. And they're like, man, where are they going to hear the gospel? 875 miles away, Onesimus heard the gospel and God saved that man. And it had nothing to do with Philemon. It had everything to do with God and his sovereign grace. So be encouraged by that. Also, too, I think about this. God brought Onesimus to Rome to meet Christ. That's a heck of a journey. A heck of a journey. And I just thought about today, all these people that are in this room, maybe as part of your journey that God is sovereign over, he's brought you here today. He's brought you to this church. And I know some of you, in your story, in your journey, Bethel Church, Cedar Lake, has only been a very, very small part of it. You've just been coming, hearing sermons, been in and around Christianity. Maybe as a part of your journey, he's brought you here like he brought Onesimus to Rome. Why? To experience true freedom in Christ. To come and meet Jesus. To embrace him, to trust him, to love him, to be saved, to experience forgiveness of sins. Think about that. Maybe God sovereignly brought you here today to trust Christ right now and to be changed and be transformed. Onesimus goes from running from job, responsibility, and law to being a runner for the gospel. Isn't that cool? He runs from job, law, owner to Rome where he experiences true freedom and now he becomes a runner for Paul and a runner for the gospel. Friends, God is a sovereign Savior. And as we sang earlier, He is willing and He is able. Stop running from God because it's pointless. It's pointless. You can't outrun His sovereign hand and you can't outsin His sovereign grace. And I pray that all of us would grasp the weight of that this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for today, for your grace. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for your word that just brings us to this place again where we're reminded of Christ. We so often forget about Him. We so often have gospel amnesia. We forget about this treasure. We forget about this great, this great thing that we have in the gospel and in you, Jesus. So God, I pray that you do your work. For those of us in here that have a hard heart, God, you know how to overcome that. Change those folks in here today. Break them down by your grace. Give them a soft heart and cause them to trust in you. For those of us who, who, who have this gospel amnesia, I pray that we would identify with Onesimus. We are the ones who are prone to run. We are the ones who are prone to run away from God. And the rhythm of the Christian life is a constant running from God and a running back to receive your grace. 
God, we're thankful that you don't tire or grow weary of forgiving us. Thank you for that. And I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.